Hello, and welcome to our special Veterans Day Cambridge Stronger podcast episode. I'm your host, Amy Weber, CEO of Cambridge and host of Cambridge Stronger, a podcast where culture counts and values matter most. At Cambridge, we are truly grateful for all of the individuals who have and currently do serve this country. It has often been said that freedom isn't free, and we certainly do not take our veterans for granted here at Cambridge. To show our appreciation, we teamed up with our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee and Advisory Council to spotlight a veteran Cambridge financial professional. Joining me today is Rob Young, owner and financial professional at Blue Dot Wealth Management. Thanks for joining me, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here, Amy. Looking forward to letting our listeners be able to learn more about you and your journey. And let's start in my very favorite place. So you've got more than two decades of experience in the industry, but your degree is in history. Not unlike many of us in this industry that we get here accidentally. So you're not the uh, odd one here by any means, but I do really enjoy my guests sharing the story with others so that everybody kind of understands that this is an industry that welcomes all. So talk about how you got started in financial services. Yeah, uh, like Bob Ross, uh, most of my life or my career anyway is a series of happy little accidents. So um, when I graduated from college, I moved from Flagstaff down to uh, Phoenix. And uh, like most college grads, you start looking through, well, this was 1996, 1997 or so. You start looking through the newspaper at the, at the want ads because that's what we did back then. And I was circling a bunch of substitute teaching jobs and thought to myself, that's probably what I'm going to do. What else do you do with a history degree? And I flipped a page and there was an ad that said, come work at Charles Schwab. The starting pay, I think, was like close to 20000 which in 1996 seemed like a lot of money. And so I circled it as one of many job interviews. Uh, they hired me. I thought I was special. Uh, but it turns out, uh, as, as most people would remember, that was the beginning of the internet boom. Uh, they were taking anybody with a college degree and a pulse. And as I have liked to joke, seven months later, nine months later, they were taking anyone with a pulse. Uh, it didn't matter if you had a college degree. So, you know, from there, I just was uh, fortunate to, I think, fall in love with the industry at a, at a, you know, almost as soon as I got into it. Well, That's you know, what's funny is I, it's a small world and our paths didn't cross, but they could have. So in around that time frame. I was living in Phoenix. I was working at one of Charles Schwab's competitors, and I was trying to hire all those people with a pulse from Schwab to come over and work with me. So I could have easily uh, had your resume landed on my desk, had a conversation with you. So our industry is a very small world for sure. It really is. So you say that your family's history is a big motivator for you to help other people plan for the future. So explain that. How did that family history shape your outlook and attitude towards money and financial responsibility growing up and then into your career? Yeah. So my grandfather had a heart attack um, when my mom was 13, passed away pretty much immediately. Hmm. And as I have joked you know, many times, back in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, the encyclopedia salesmen, vacuum cleaner salesmen, and life insurance salesmen were all the same people. And my grandparents bought two out of three, and it wasn't life insurance. So, you know, essentially, at the time my grandfather passed away in today's dollars, he would have been worth around two and a half million dollars. He was a real estate guy, a broker. He was a hardworking guy based on everything that my mom said. And they had a really idyllic 
uh, life. They had a, you know, a beautiful home in Dayton, Ohio. And when he passed away, my grandmother really didn't seem to have any guidance. There was no one there to help her craft a plan. It all happened very suddenly. So they went from, you know, being in private schools and boarding schools and all kinds of, you know, crazy upper middle class, 1950s, 60s type stuff to essentially moving to Phoenix and my grandmother becoming a nurse and barely making ends meet for, for quite a while. Right. So that not having a good financial plan changed my family's trajectory pretty, pretty extensively. So, you know, I think that's why so much of this business is, is important to me. Like what we do really is important, really does matter. I think sometimes in life, stories like that maybe don't get told enough anymore. Pre-TVs, I didn't, I didn't even live back then, but, um, you know, when all a family had to do was sit around and tell stories about how, why we're here and how we got here. And I'm not sure that happens much anymore with all of the other outside noise that takes place. And even um, when you were growing up, it was somewhere in the middle. Did you ask questions about this? Were you curious about these things? Did your mother just have the wisdom to make sure that she shared so that it could have such a significant impact on you as you were growing up? You know, I think so much of it was, uh, was stories and, and, and references to stuff uh, when I was, was a kid. It wasn't until I was much, much older that I started kind of putting a lot of the the pieces together and the and the story together. You know, and as my mom got older and I got older, you know, we had more candid conversations about it. You know, to your point, I don't think those kinds of family stories are shared nearly as much as as maybe they used to be. Yeah. You know, not good or bad potentially, just a whole new world of young people potentially learning and, and understanding different things based on how we behave. Um, so I think it's really fascinating that your mom had the foresight to share those things with you that in the end ended up, hopefully, you know, at some point you put together, hey, I'm working at Charles Schwab and had my family had somebody, maybe this would have been different to your point. So very cool yep. story. So your website um, says that one of your specialties is helping clients with socially responsible and values-based investing. First of all, explain to our listeners in case they aren't familiar what that means to you. What does that mean for your business? Yeah. So essentially the way that uh, we view socially responsible investing or ESG investing or any of those, you know, whatever acronym you want to, you know, you want to use with that. Um, we use it as an extra data point in how we evaluate uh, companies to invest in. You know, what I have seen in, in over, I don't know, 25-ish years or so in this industry is that generally speaking, companies that do better by their stakeholders, by, you know, their community, et cetera, tend to perform better as a as an investment vehicle. There's a lot of great data on, you know, the, the number of women on a board of directors, uh, you know, the the diversity of a, within a company structure, uh, within management structures, most of those things lead to better outcomes over time. So it's, it, you know, it's not necessarily a, a, a guarantee that those companies are going to do better all the time. But generally speaking, over time, if companies do the right thing by their, uh, all the people that are kind of involved, those companies financially do better as well. We essentially use that as another data point in how we're evaluating the companies that we have, you know, investor clients money. 
So do you attract clients through branding that are already interested in this or and or are you the one leading the clients down this path of thought? How does it work when they, you know, when you're prospecting? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Uh, to be honest with you, I think that there are definitely clients that are attracted to what we do because of why we do it. And I do think that once clients strip away a lot of the, I don't know, the the jargon and the, I don't know, the noise around what socially responsible investing is, and we show them how it's part of our overall process. No one ever has a problem with the idea of saying, oh, I want to take a little bit less risk because I want to invest in companies that actually don't do X, Y, Z, right? Whatever that might be. Um, and it has tended to help us avoid big headline risks over time, which is a good thing. So what if a client isn't interested in it? Do you not work with them? Do you refer them off to someone else? Is that such an important part of your business that you, you really don't focus on clients who maybe for whatever reason, just it doesn't resonate for them? Yeah, essentially, the short answer to that is, is not necessarily. I am one member of a, of a team of people. So if somebody isn't necessarily attracted to the process that I tend to use, there's somebody else on the team uh, that they might be a good fit with. And that's okay, right? Um, it's it, it will sneak its way in there, uh, honestly, just from the standpoint of philosophically, one of our, our uh, I'm going to say core values is is leaving the world a better place than, than we found it, right? Sounds familiar. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I love Cambridge. <laughs> so a couple of things there resonate, but um, I want to come back to talking about your team and the diversity of team and how, why that's important, because I don't want to lose sight of that piece that you just brought up. Really key. But before we go there, I think there's a lot of financial advisors who are intrigued and interested in socially responsible investing and values-based investing, but maybe just haven't quite figured it out yet. So what would you recommend? Like you talked about your process. Are there tools? Is there education? What's the process? If somebody were trying to learn more about how to incorporate this into their business? I think a great book to read is a book called Conscious Capitalism. And it's not a, it, you know, it's more philosophical, I guess, if you will, uh, maybe even aspirational, but I think it's a good place for, for people to start and, and at least getting the, the perspective of uh, at least what I think aligns with my perspective on kind of why we do what we do. Right. And it really lays out a, a philosophical framework for stakeholders rather than shareholders. And, you know, having a, you know, a business that, you know, aligns well with the interests of a community, whatever that community might be. And, and I think intuitively people reading that book will get what the objective is uh, in, in all of that. I think that's a really good place to start. There's a number of different tools out there. Um, you can go down a rabbit hole on figuring out, but, you know, essentially, there's a, a lot of programs out there that can help you evaluate what a company is as far as social, uh, being socially responsible or, or being values-based investing or whatever. I think the rabbit hole part of it is different companies have different objectives or metrics that they use. It's not necessarily all uniform. So it does take, I think, a little bit of time in, in trying to figure that out, which is why ultimately we use it as a data point and a guidepost as opposed to like something that's a hard and fast rule. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Ages ago, we used to hate Walmart, you know, in the socially responsible community because they didn't pay their people enough, right? And uh, over time, the the executives at Walmart recognized this, 
And they did a lot of things that nibbled around the edges uh, of being better with resources. And what they found was that, oh, hey, if we're better with uh, recycling the amount of pallets that we use or, or packaging with this or these other things here around, they, they essentially figured out that it was actually really cost effective to quote unquote go green. And they've been doing that inside of their supply chain now for multiple decades. And so, you know, just because a, a company used to kind of be on a no opportunity list doesn't necessarily mean that it still is. And I think uh, some of the, the folks that I really enjoy following in this sphere are really more interested in helping companies figure out where they can be better as opposed to just starting with like the, the people that are the best. And I think kind of like most things in life, the opportunity is helping everybody get better and grow. I think that is a fascinating perspective and maybe lots of people for many different reasons in life could take a lesson from what you just said, which is that just because a company or a person has a certain perspective at one point in time, doesn't mean that they don't grow and they don't change. Um, and they should be written off forever, kind of make the world a better place, leave the world better than you left it, all of that stuff better than you found it, right? So I think that's a, a really important message for a lot of us that we could take to heart. All right, let's go to the other part that I really loved that you talked about, which is, these are my words, not yours, but you talked about the diversity of the team and that if a client, a particular client walked in the door and their particular situation, philosophical, core values, whatever it may be, um, investment desires didn't fit with yours, they would fit with someone else's. So let's talk about the team and the staff and what that looks like in your organization so that you can satisfy that. Because my personal opinion is businesses that are focusing on that key are going to be the most successful going into the future. So please share. Yeah. So I feel like I have lucked into the team that we have. And if you ask anybody on the team, they would say it, it wasn't luck, but I feel lucky. I feel, I guess, fortunate in all of that. So we have uh, one of the advisors on our team uh, has been in the industry for well over 20 years and she's getting ready to retire. She's become a good mentor for, you know, the, the couple of younger advisors that we have on the team. Um, she's a CFP. She's got a really strong real estate background. She complements things that I am less good at. I am a self-professed liker of alternatives, but I can barely spell 1031 exchange. So it's really nice to have her. Uh, she's got a really strong planning background, and it's it's really nice to have her on the team. And then uh, we have two younger advisors. Uh, our operations uh, folks call them the boys. They're roughly about the same age. <laughs> and um, they have come onto the team in the last year, year and a half or so. And what's really been, I think, satisfying or gratifying in all of that is being able to coach and mentor these young men in, into becoming, you know, ideally, you know, the next generation of advisors. And, you know, they both have their own strong suits. Ryan on our team is a, is a former attorney, a tax law attorney. He's, I'm going to say much, much more analytical uh, on things that surround uh, insurance. So does so, a client work with multiple team members at a time or like, is there a lead? How does that work? Um, if I were to come in and I had a complex estate planning issue that perhaps wasn't right for a particular advisor, did you bring that person in at that point in time? That's exactly right. We basically are looking to 
give clients a team experience when it's warranted for them. Uh, so having a team of experts in the office allows us, I think, to serve the client better. If someone is selling a, a business, if somebody is has a lot of uh, stock options or concentrated stock positions in their 401k, or like there's a lot of different kinds of scenarios where people come in with a lot of different needs that uh, having a team around them allows us to just, just better serve them and give them a little bit more diversity of, of thought and experience. Yeah, makes sense. So how about the younger advisors that you're talking about? Where did you find them? People are having a lot of trouble attracting younger generations into our business and into their organizations and and putting together programs that keep them engaged. So what are the what are the keys to that particular what are, to that secret sauce that you've got going on there? Yeah, I will tell you what has worked for me. I don't know if it necessarily would work for everybody and I think it does depend a little bit on geography, right, where you are. I'm lucky enough to be in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And one of our advisors is in Colorado. And again, big metropolitan area between Denver and Fort Collins. So, you know, but essentially what's really worked for me is telling people what I'm actually looking for. And I have a good network of uh, wholesalers and other peers in the industry and just people in general. And if anyone is ever asking me how they can help me, uh, especially on the on the wholesaling front, I just tell them I'm looking for people. I'm looking for good people. And I've been telling people that since I came to Cambridge for seven years. So I think, you know, as people are out there hearing that message, uh, I have just been lucky enough to, you know, have uh, a number of people kind of uh, cross my path. You know, not all of them have worked out. Uh, we probably have a four or five to one ratio on that. And as my wife would tell you, you know, she has either told me what red flags to look for or told me to like avoid people, you know, consistently. So, you know, I think the other part of that is having a good hiring process or thinking about what your hiring process should be. You know, I, I kind of mentioned my wife. She's a fierce advocate for for me and for the firm. And she knows that I'm the kind of person that likes anyone instantly. And that's a that's a great thing when you're trying to attract clients. And that's a bad thing when you're trying to attract people, because not everyone is going to be a good fit, even if you like them. It's a learning curve, I think. But having somebody that's a check on my enthusiasm has helped me avoid more bad people than than not. And I don't mean bad people from the bad standpoint, but just you know people that weren't a good fit for us. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's great advice. We still utilize it. I mean, that's the whole idea behind interviewing and having, you know, for instance, our leadership team, if we're hiring a member into the leadership team, we don't all interview the person together. We want to interview them separately or maybe in groups of two so that we can compare notes later and get our own perspective on, uh, you know, whether or not that person would be a good fit or not. And we all tend to ask different questions in different ways where you get a different kind of response. It's those kinds of things that need to be built into a process. And I would think even if you're a solo, you know, there's a way potentially to engage with our HR consulting outsourcing program, perhaps inside Cambridge Source, but a lot of communities have consultants that you can engage to help you out with that. Um, just for the listeners who perhaps are rolling their eyes right now going, well, I don't have the, I'm all by myself. I don't have the resources to do that. And my wife isn't that brilliant. Rob's wife is <laughs> to, to help him out, but I don't have that uh, skill set in my family. So um, I think that's really, really good advice that, you know, there's w different ways of getting there, which is really good. 
talk about Cambridge's Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Advisory Council. First of all, thank you for your efforts. For those listeners who aren't familiar with our advisory councils, Cambridge has many. We are not one of those companies that feel like we can get a group of our only our top advisors to contribute to our goals as it relates to everything on the planet um, that's going on in the business. A lot of companies have one advisory council, and and we tend to make sure that we've got people who are passionate about a particular topic. So thank you for sitting in on our DE&I council. And you've also served in the Army from 1988 to 92, so thank you very much for your service. Share with the listeners a little bit about why you're on DE&I if and how that may connect to making your business, you know, a, a more open and inclusive environment, potentially, as you've been talking about already. And then how did your military experience fit into all of that and transform you? First of all, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to thank you and your leadership team, because not everybody necessarily thinks about that stuff. So I have found that experience uh, so far to be really educational. I am always looking for different perspectives on just about everything. You know, I went into serving on that council with with the idea of trying to listen more and talk less, which I hope that I have (laughs) been able to do, uh, been able to accomplish. I have three children. My oldest is 22 and non-binary and uh, graduating from college, and I want them to have the the best opportunity to find a fit somewhere, wherever that might be. The flip side of that is that I also want the company that I am leading to have uh, a, a place for you know for literally anybody. In conjunction with that, uh, my four year old is on the autism spectrum, and I want him to have the most, every opportunity available to him, right? So, uh, you know, most of my life has been kind of uh, attempting to kind of live up to the Gandhi quote, be the change you want to see in the world kind of thing. So I feel like that has to start with me. So the more I'm learning from other people in my mind, the better. I think how that pertains to, you know, my service in the army, I grew up in uh, Yuma, Arizona, which is a very small town on the border of Arizona, California, and Mexico. And I was, it's a military town. And I was very fortunate to have friends from just about every walk of life. And when I was in the army, there was one thing that I feel like I took away uh, that's at the very core of my being, it's, you know, leave no person behind, right? And that has informed in many ways, uh, just uh, almost every aspect of my life. You know, I just really feel, you know, I don't think that I can change the world in any way, shape or form, but I do think that I can change my little corner of it. And the intentions that I set out um, will ideally have uh, reverberations, ideally at least one generation. (laughs) So if I'm lucky. If I'm lucky. I think that is really admirable. And inclusivity and belonging are probably the two big important messages that I just heard in you sharing um, your personal experiences. I would guess many of our listeners probably have not heard, at least many people kind of tie together the no person left behind in that whole conversation of DE&I. And I love that. This is a perfect example of how if you do more listening instead of talking and you try to think bigger about leaving your fingerprint of inclusivity and belonging everywhere that you go, you can usually find some sort of a tie-in. And I think that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. 
One other question on your service in the military, besides the huge point that you just made, were there anything from a skill set perspective or experiences that you learned in your military service that you found really helpful when you were starting your own business as an entrepreneur? Um, I also sometimes see them as kind of different, right? A, a fair amount of time there tend to taught to follow the chain of command and being an entrepreneur is kind of the wild, wild west and a little bit crazy. So how did you pull all that together and find a, a synergy there to build your own business? Yeah, I think, uh, I think two things. I have been willing to unlearn the bad parts of leadership that I learned in the military. And I've been willing to lean into good things uh, about about that. I had a wonderful mentor when I was at Sun America Securities ages ago who really coached me on better being a better leader. I had uh, come out of the, uh, I was in the infantry, so everything was like charge up that hill, blow stuff up, get home safe, right? Like that. <laughs> and leaders can't just bark orders. I think, you know, everything has to be much, much more collaborative. And I've been willing to learn and listen and uh, and, and just do a lot of reading on what does make a good leader. And, you know, there was a lot of unlearning. It didn't happen overnight. Uh, it's probably been, it continues to be a, you know, two decade journey on, on that. But the flip side of that is I think one of the great things about being in, in the military and having that kind of uh, background is that, you know, I love SOPs. I love standardizing stuff. I love, you know, having a process behind everything that we do and, uh, I've really leaned into that aspect of of that background. Uh, it's really, really helpful in just trying to, you know, number one, run a business and, and stay organized, but it just in, in my everyday life. I am a creature of routine, and I think all of that stems from, from that period of my life. That's great. Thank you for sharing. One more um, question on that topic before we move on is Veterans Day. What does it mean to you? And you wrote a blog, I believe, thanking our veterans. Tell the listeners a little bit about some insight on that blog and how it ties into your philosophy around thanking our veterans. So thank you. I, you you're uh, probably one of seven people that have read that. So thank you. <laughs> well, we got to figure out how to get it out there. Maybe more yeah. people will um, we'll have to uh, somehow tie it into the end of this so that they know where to go to find it. But Sure. So I'll back up with what Veterans Day means uh, to me. I feel like... I'm incredibly lucky, privileged, what have you, to have had that experience in my life. I did a lot of growing up uh, in the four years that I served. I am continually in awe of people that have served much longer and done much, 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 much harder things than, than I have ever done. I think that that level of service, regardless of how long you, you have been in for, changes your perspective on life in, in lots of different ways. For me, I view all of that as, as a real privilege. And I think, you know, roughly only 1% of Americans actually serve in the military, maybe a little bit more than that. If I'm being generous, let's say 2%. So it is really nice that people thank us on that one day. What I would like to see culturally happen is that more of us find ways of being a service to our community, right? So if you want to thank a veteran, I think that's wonderful. If you want to support veterans' causes and and really jump in and lean into that, I think that's better. But I think really if all of us are doing more to serve our communities, whether that's at uh, you know food banks or uh, soup kitchens or 
domestic violence shelters. I have a, a my barber as an example, uh, cuts hair for homeless and veterans, you know, not just once a year, but fairly regularly, right? Like those kinds of acts of service to me are uh, much more impactful uh, and have bigger reverberations, you know, down the road than than just saying thank you to somebody when you find out that they're that they're a vet. So that that blog post is is really just you know, uh, maybe a little bit of a call to action for people to to think about doing more in, in their local community. Thank you for that. Perfect segue, because I know you personally have a lot of charities that are near and dear to your heart that maybe we can spend some time on. Um, and also then talk about how you help your clients plan for their own charitable giving in their lives, because you're so passionate about this particular topic. I do really feel, and I, you know, here's the thing that I love about Cambridge. And here's the thing that I love about the advisors in the Cambridge community. There's not one person that I've ever met that doesn't do something to give back. I think the vast majority of financial professionals really do uh, in their core have something that they're really passionate about and, and want to give back. I think for a lot of clients, sometimes they, they do think about those things and sometimes they don't. Uh, one of our, we have five rules of what makes a good client. One of those rules is leaving a legacy for their family or their community. And we don't care about the size of the legacy. What we do care about is that, you know, we have an intention again of, of leaving the world a better place than how we found it. And so when we're bringing uh, clients on board. That's one of the things that we tend to talk about. Oftentimes it's organic, uh, you know, either to, you know, our initial process of bringing somebody on board or just over time, but it's, it's still something that's something that we talk to clients about on a fairly regular basis. I think that's great. You're uh, all we can do as individuals is one moment of service to your point, using your words at a time. Um, and if we try to make our world a better place that hopefully contributes to the greater good. So um, I think that's all really good advice. For those that uh, want to be number eight, nine, and 10 on reading that blog, where do they find it? <laughs> I think that's on LinkedIn. I, from way back in, in, I don't know, I think that's probably like three years old or so. On your uh, profile, right? On my profile, right, exactly. Perfect. That's Rob Young's LinkedIn profile for a really inspiring read on thanking our veterans and how to do so for those listeners out there. So, Rob, let's wrap up and talk about what you do um, in your free time. We do have free time. It's a myth that we don't uh, in this business. So besides all of the charitable work that I know that you do, where do you like to spend your time? I spend a lot of time just being a dad, frankly. I mentioned my 22-year-old. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and they keep me quite busy, as one might imagine. I do a little bit of, I build uh, a little bit of furniture. I do a lot of home improvement stuff. All of that stuff really helps me exercise a different part of my brain of that. Pretty avid backpacker. I am currently training for two things. I'm training for a half marathon in February, and then next October, I am uh, going down to Ecuador to backpack on a 19,000 foot volcano. Wow. Uh, I don't know I don't know if I'm going to get to the top cuz well, it's a year away, but uh it, it's always about the journey and not necessarily the the destination for me. My wife and I travel quite a bit. That that seems like a lot, but that's basically uh I don't sleep much. That does seem like a lot. You must not need a lot of sleep. Um, get it done while you're young is what I would exactly. say. Exactly. Uh, because yeah. that could change very quickly. Um, and 
four and seven are really active, but give it a few more years. Those kids are going to keep you hopping, I imagine, as well. And so some of that other stuff for you starts to take a back seat because all your time and energy goes into making sure you're there for them. So that's a really exciting time. Rob, thanks for trusting Cambridge and being a part of our Cambridge nation. You're really an inspiration. Our, our core values as I sit here talking with you um, align really, really well. It'll be exciting to see where you and your team take the business into the future. So thanks for letting us be just a teeny tiny part of it. Oh, thank you very much, Amy. I really appreciate your time today. And it was a pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. We are Cambridge Stronger.